0: I think that what we bring as nature writers can invest writing about uh, the climate crisis with something new and something where somebody reading it can say, ah, this is, relates to my life.
1: Welcome to the Wild Air Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Bedelt, and I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, David Gessner, David is a creative nonfiction and essay writer. He's the author of 12 books, including All the Wild That Remains, which was a New York Times bestseller. His most recent book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, explores the life of Henry Thoreau in the context of the global pandemic. David is also a columnist with Orion Magazine, and he teaches creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. What I love about David's writing is his voice. When I read his work, I feel like I'm being brought along on a journey with him whether that's a road trip across the Midwest or a more metaphysical journey exploring a deeper-rooted question. David's voice is thoughtful, curious, and often quite funny. The
0: kind of climate writing I'm trying to do right now doesn't necessarily fit the mold and doesn't necessarily have answers at the end, which may be irritating to
1: some people. In our conversation today, David shares some great advice for aspiring writers. We also talk about what it means to be a nature writer in this time of environmental crisis. Without further ado, here's my conversation with David. Good morning, David. Great to see you.
0: Nice to be here, Brad.
2: David, I thought the first question I would ask is for you to tell me a little bit about your first experiences with nature and how that might have influenced or shaped your writing.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because like a lot of people it was kind of a joint infatuation with books and the natural world. And I guess my first real love affair was with Cape Cod, which I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time on in the summers. And, you know, and also New England, getting up to the mountains in New Hampshire and Vermont. uh, And then I went to school. My family moved to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. My father was Following a job there, and I stayed behind, and I went to Northfield Mount Hermon in Western Massachusetts. I found I learned more at that school than I did in college. I also uh, liked to sneak out after curfew and walk, and later cross-country ski through the woods there, and they were they were they were pretty vast. And I remember one time, and I can't remember if marijuana was involved or not, but I remember a long walk where I ended up ripping up a dollar bill. Uh, my father was very much a real world, you know, textile machinery uh, businessman. And so my rebellion against him, uh, I was the first born in a family of four, was one of the dramas of my early life. <laughs> and the place, you know, kind of picture Dead Poet Society. <laughs> it was, And I don't know which role I would be. I didn't kill myself, so I wasn't that one, but... Um, uh, So that, you know, it was linked, as it so often is, to rebellion, this idea of of nature as a place to go other than your normal place. And also, like a lot of people, I uh, stumbled upon Mr. Thoreau early on as a sophomore in sophomore English class, and that pretty much did it. You know, it was was a, a falling in love right then. You know, a lot of the writing was a little boring to me, but the general message the life men praise and call successful is but one kind. Spoke right to my adolescent heart. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I find myself against the authoritative voice that was my father's, with uh, grabbing onto this equally authoritative but slightly uh, funkier voice that was uh, that was Mister Thoreau. So mm-hmm. that was kind of how it started. Then I mentioned Cape Cod uh, after college. Uh, Not really knowing what I was going to do, I moved there and I realized that what I'd seen during the summers was nothing compared to what happened once the bird migration started. And once the seals came back and once the colors, quite Mm -hmm. different than New England, um, mountain inland colors, more purple and more more uh, like Iceland almost. Uh, And I loved that year. That was a year that kind of sent me over the top.
2: I love the scene at the start of your book, uh Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, where you, you bring your daughter uh to the site of, of Thoreau's former cabin. And I think the quote is this is this is where the man who ruined my life, your father's life once lived. That made me laugh that, baby, that <laughs> yeah. scene.
0: Yeah. And I and then I say ruined in a good way. I mean, it really did kind of set me off on a course after college. I was just talking to some graduating undergrads last night, and to them my God, it must seem an eternity. I graduated in 23, at 23, waiting to be, wanting to be, you know, an author. And I published my first book at 35, which doesn't seem so bad in retrospect, but those were long years. And, you know, working part-time as a carpenter, working in a homeless shelter, working in bookstores, and not knowing uh, where I was going to end up. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty there. But, Thoreau was studying uh and it's funny because at the same time I was reading Thoreau I was reading Vonnegut as a teenager and they kind of mixed together it was like a Reeses peanut butter cup sort okay. of thing where the humor and the and the, the nature stuff start kind of started coming together
2: uh, David you've written a, a lot of books and I always think of you as a creative nonfiction writer but you've also written quite a bit of uh quite a few novels I believe can you speak to how I guess that side of your writing, interacts with or shapes your 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 nonfiction and essay writing
0: well you know I've written I haven't published novels though I'm I'm working on one I have high hopes for right now but I've written maybe eight novels over the course of um, you know my career and in my 20s that's what I wanted to be as a novelist mm-hmm. I had no I you know I read nature writers but I wasn't interested in being a nature writer and frankly I didn't think I qualified. As a kind of poor naturalist, so the novels I wrote, which had a bit of nature in them, um, at first were kind of clunky. I joked that my characters would quote Thoreau to each other, but they got better. And when I finally turned to nonfiction, with the help of my mentor in Colorado, Red Sonner, I had I had certain skills as a nonfiction writer that I'd gained from being a fiction writer. Uh, namely scene dialogue you know using kind of more fast-paced uh, fictional techniques in my non-fiction and by that I don't mean I was lying I mean I was just using mm-hmm. uh, the skill set a classic example I just taught Tobias Wolf's well, this boy's life and you really see what a fiction writer can do with non-fiction in that where it almost all moves in scene and dialogue mm-hmm. so yeah that really has helped me. Conversely, now going back to fiction later on, I find that I'm more willing to be descriptive and to pause and to tell as well as show. So it's, it's it was a good mix. Totally unintentional that I um, did it that way, but I think it really helped the, the nonfiction. And a lot of my first book, which is about Cape Cod, where I used details that I dug up trying to write a novel first, and then I use them in nonfiction.
2: David, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think in some of your earlier interviews, you didn't like to be referred to or thought of as a nature writer, or you kind of bristled at the term of being a nature writer. Is yeah. that still the case, or has that changed?
0: Um, I don't mind it being part of the description, and and certainly some of them, uh, in the newest book, which is called The Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, I say that it turns out that uh, the tools of a nature writer going into places, observing the world and observing people, interacting with them, uh, writing about them, turn out to be very useful when it comes to climate writing and crisis writing. It's just a little more uh, electrified version of you know going in and seeing a semi-palmated plover or something, mm-hmm. going in and seeing somebody whose house is just um, burned down. And so th- I like the tools of it. I like to mix it with other things, uh, with humor, with reporting, with memoir. Uh, I think, you know, I try to get my students, I try to nudge them away from memoir because, you know, not, just not the self. And then I feel like a phony because I realize I've written 13 books about myself. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's myself and the world. Mm-hmm. It's me and then looking outward. So early on, and I kind of overdo this when I do talks, really, but I say that A Wild Rank Place, my first book, and the title comes from a Thoreau quote about Cape Cod, it is a wild ranked place and there's no flattery in it. I'm thinking of Cape Cod in the winter, Mm -hmm. not, not summertime. I thought, and I still think it's mostly a memoir of my father dying and my finding my voice as he loses his and a lot of the stories are about him and focus on his kind of blunt businessman's voice hmm. so i was a little surprised uh, when it was called a nature book and then i turned around and wrote under the devil's thumb it's funny because i wrote most of the cape book while i was in colorado then i moved to the cape to promote the cape book and wrote a book about love in colorado while on the cape and uh, that Really to me, that book was about how our regions form us and how we're still really regional, despite the McDonald's and the flattening out of the of the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was also called a nature book. So that's when I wrote the essay Sick of Nature. You know, it starts like, I am sick of trees, I'm sick of birds, I'm sick of the ocean. And really what I was sick of is the straitjacket of genre, feeling like I was expected to ooh and ah at everything. And mm-hmm you all kind of new agey. And, um, but the irony of that one is that an editor for Algonquin read it, loved the essay and asked me if I could write a book about birds. So that's when I really became a nature writer with Return of the Osprey. And uh, and just to continue that kind of weirdness of those first few books, that book kind of ends on a Wendell Berryess note where I say, I will stay on Cape Cod forever which is how I got my current job in North Carolina, you know, and, um, and I'm really grateful that I didn't, even though it would have been a better life in some ways, I'm really grateful that I didn't settle in either Cape Cod or Colorado and continue to just write books about how much I loved the place I was. Mm. Some of my favorite books, it's favorite writers do that from, you know, Wendell Berry to obviously Thoreau and, um, but I'm glad I didn't because I came to a place where I was a little bit of an exile and we were on the hurricane coast raising our, my, our daughter was three months old when we got here and there was an element of uncertainty and chaos. And that's why I formed the journal Ecotone, which was about place, but not about the old kind of more sanctimonious view of place. So I feel like my career has benefited from being what I call a polygamous of place, mm-hmm. not a single... I don't have one place where I say, I'm married to you. I stay forever. You know, I get out West every summer. I go back to the Cape. So I'm moving between those poles. And though I kind of dream of finding one place, I I think it's, it's been healthy for me to do it the way I've done it.
2: Yeah. I was going to ask you about that, David, because it's certainly something that I think a lot of writers dream about nature writers of, of really being rooted in a place and, and, you know, writing for that, that region. And I certainly, I've had that that wish, but I don't know if it's all that applicable anymore, where people do move about and people people rent. Do you think that model of of Thoreau, knowing your place, knowing your backyard, has shifted with writers?
0: Uh, it depends on the writer, and I think it's a lovely and important thing to continue that experiment. Um, I tried to do that a little in The uh, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, and I really do love my backyard where I am right now in North Carolina, mm-hmm. I'm on Hewlett's Creek, also known as Dawson's Creek. I've got a writing shack down there, so I love it. Um, is it my? Did I ever in the million years expect to be in the South? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it my favorite place on earth? No. Um, but it's you know it's a it's a good marriage for sure to the to the place. Mm-hmm. And um, so I guess the other thing that I like about it is going to your point, I'm not trying to stand as a model of behavior and singular, you know, like when I read Walden, even though he he's saying, I found a different way to live. So to a certain degree with Wendell Berry, you're hearing the same thing, maybe not as uh, stridently like here's my alternate way to live, which involves marrying a place. I'm not trying to do that as a writer. And so maybe it's good. I don't think this is a rationalization, though. It sounds a little like one. I think it's good that my own self in my book reflects the geographic uncertainty that so many of us feel. And I think that's more of a majority of us. Now, would we be a better world if if we were all kind of rooting down in our home places? Probably. Uh, That's not where we are, movement. And certainly with climate, uh, you know, climate refugees aren't just going to be in Indonesia. We've already seen New Orleans, thousands and thousands of people move to Houston and move to Texas, where they were then hit with floods, where they moved on to the next place. So this uncertainty is very much our story at the moment, rooting down I still admire it. I still try to do it to some extent, but um, it's not the story I'm telling. Right
2: mm-hmm. now. It was inter I found an interesting reading in Quiet Desperation. It was in the thick of the pandemic, and you were seeing some hopeful signs in terms of people turning inward, uh, focusing more, I would say, on relationships, slowing down, the return of wildlife in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting to read it now. It kind of revived, I remember that feeling. But of course, you know, we're, we're we're kind of out of the pandemic or coming out of it for sure. Do you still see lingering signs of the pandemic in terms of us, like some of those hopeful signs that you saw, or do you feel like we've come out of it completely and we're back to business as usual?
0: What I hear from most people is the opposite of hopeful signs, you know, mm. and and uh, and the combination of that with an extremely intense period when i wrote the latest book traveler's guide it was only a, i started traveling again in i guess a year after it's the year after the pandemic we started yeah and i moved i went up to dc first which was bizarrely you know barbed wired and deserted and military mm-hmm. people everywhere and then just coincidentally i went out west to former ancient pueblo and Dwellings that were also empty and abandoned, and started thinking about civilization and and that it can fail. Mm. You know, um, and so for me, that time there were some positives to it for sure. Not just the fact that there were mountain lions prowling down the main street of Boulder during snowstorms and things like that, but I was chair of our department and I basically had a whole building that no one else could come into mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I had the riding shack and a kayak that would connect me to the world in the backyard and our daughter was home and so I did not feel pain in quite the way some other people did. Mm-hmm. Now, simultaneously, I turned 60 during that time and a lot of I had a lot of folks dying on me but close people, not of COVID, but of other things. Uh-huh. So, so there was that. But I feel like we've emerged into this time of where there have been just, oh, I know what I was going to say about the year. So uh-huh. the year of travel was just insane. It was like I'd see a flash flood in Utah. I'd see a fire you know, as I traveled into California. I'd come back here to the hurricanes. I, I write in the new book that my daughter's four years of high school were uh, hurricane Florence, freshman year, where her high school was turned into a, you know, a, a hospital basically for a month. A regular spring term for freshman year. Another hurricane, I forget what its name was, in the in next fall. Then it was COVID the rest of the way. Um, so that was her four years of of high school. Wow. And that really, I would put that up against somebody who tells me things haven't changed and climate you know, hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. So. So that's intense, right? I mean, that, that we're in this. Um, for me, I did not emerge depressed. From I, it was it was in a way refreshing to get away from the busyness of my life. Mm-hmm. But I uh, I empathized with the people who did, yeah, fair. Who, who didn't? Who felt pretty beaten up and continue to feel beaten up.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: really empathize with my students who. Combined with the with COVID, thinking ahead in terms of climate, uh, get get pretty overwhelmed.
2: By mm-hmm. David, I really enjoyed you have a recent column in Orion Magazine about what the role of a nature writer is today in this you know climate crisis with this world we're in today. Could you speak a little bit to kind of where you're at as far as the role of a nature writer today?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess historically or critically, particularly. In- According to New York critics, it's a kind of minor type of writing. And we're off to the side, you know, wearing our tweed coats and our binoculars and our little funny hats. Um, And to me, it seems that the crisis we're in uh, makes it clear that we're not that, that we're not minor side players, that there's, there's something major here. I have read a lot of climate books in the last year as I've been working on my own. And and for the most part, my friend Bill McKibben accepted, I would say, um, I find them to be uh, either these kind of book reports, factual, which apparently people like. I mean, people are hungry for CNN and MSNBC and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, they're factual book reports or they're you know, doomsday uh, cries. And despite my title, I'm not doomsday person. And I think that what we bring as nature writers can invest, and memoirs, can invest writing about uh, the climate crisis with something new and something where somebody reading it can say, ah, this is relates to my life. Um, I also think that that sort of writing doesn't have to have a goal. There don't have to be like bullet points at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to go down. I'm going to recycle. I'm going to do this and da-da-da. Part of our role as writers isn't to necessarily make somebody do something uh, right away. It's to permeate. It's to get people to, to, you know, as as much as we know climate is here, we run away from the thought. Climate change is here. We run away. We bury our heads in the sand. So it's to kind of say, this is our world now the way we have with other subjects in the past. I, I was saying, you don't read a novel and finish the novel and go, okay, now here are my action points. Mm-hmm. You know, you read a novel and it permeates your consciousness. So the kind of climate writing I'm trying to do right now doesn't necessarily fit the mold and doesn't necessarily have answers at the end, which may be irritating to some people. Um, but it's funny because I write about my daughter quite a bit and i asked scientists what the world will be like when she's my age i i was 42 when she was born so 42 yeah. years from now and the answers are pretty scary but it's a way to personalize an impersonal crisis and she's also quite different than me she got the activist gene that's missing in me and mm. you know she'll give speeches and, at city hall down here and she organized uh, a climate group at our high school and continues to do that, you know, be an activist in college. So it's interesting to see that too. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the books I read recently was Ministry for the Future Mm -hmm. in Stanley Robinson. And it's a pretty friggin' depressing book um, for about 40, 50 years into the future. Yes, it is. And when when we start, start to fight back, I thought it was interesting everybody fights back in their own the people who do in their own way the politicians pass laws the lawyers legislate the monkey wrenchers monkey wrench Uh you know um and the writer's right and i've always beaten myself up about not being more of an activist and it made me feel better like okay i know i still should do more but this is my this is what i am i'm a writer and Hadley probably will do more than write books. She'll give speeches and fire people up. But I have not fallen into that role yet. We'll see. i got a few more years left.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was, I was curious. One of your earlier books that I really love, you write about two iconic nature writers, uh, Wallace Stegner and uh, Edward Abbey. Very different personalities. Uh, Stegner seems quite stoic, whereas Abbey is wild and and also an activist. And I'm just curious, that book is probably, I don't know, seven or eight or nine years old now. If one of them stands out to you as having more of an influence on your life now or being almost more relevant now for you?
0: That's a great question. Um, The original title of that book was Properly Wild, Hmm. right? So, you know, I had just turned 50. As it turned out, I would As it ended, I would become department chair for five years, a very Mm stagnarian position. And I was at 50, you know, I'd always kind of defined myself as a little bit of a wild man. So my question to myself was can I retain some wildness uh, and some Abbey sort of wildness while also being a good dad, Mm -hmm. you know, being a good leader, uh, uh, being responsible person in my life a good husband for instance um so uh wrestling with that i really feel like now eight years later naturally i've gone in a more stagnarian direction but i'm about to do 10 days with a friend who's writing a book about jaguars on the arizona trail and i'm really trying (laughs) i'm trying (laughs) to keep my abby alive you know uh to mm-hmm. The degree that I can, and uh, and you know, Stegner was an activist too. He always said you got to sit in boring meetings, you know, in, in your mm. town or city or county. Uh, he just wasn't as flamboyant an activist. I guess no is the answer. I still draw on both of them. I, mm-hmm. hope I can. It was a really fun book to write because. Abby was somebody I just you know like so many people in the West or in the East, read him and was converted. I would say mm-hmm. he's second he's second to Thoreau historically for creating converts. And obviously we could go into his complete political incorrectness mm-hmm. and his trump and his trumpy inside in terms of border politics and misogyny. There's plenty to criticize with Abby. but, Something about reading those first pages of Desert Solitaire, this is uh-huh. the most beautiful place on earth. Um, it made people want to get out there. I think I did my first solo camping after reading it. Um, it had this, it, it intoxicated people. So there's still that. And then later on in grad school, I discovered Stegner. And boy, that was a whole new level of learning. And I brought it back to Cape Cod with me. Of kind of like the soil the climate the you know like how all these impact and create the culture um, what mm-hmm. the culture of the place is i would never thought about mormonism other than to ridicule it before that And mm-hmm. you know, he talks about it in terms of sharing uh, obviously they share too much in some ways <laughs> but but you know so it's really interesting to have both those two coming at me from different directions
2: David any advice for a young writer particularly a writer interested in nature writing or environmental writing
0: Well you know uh, I had Jason Mott who won the National Book Award a couple of, not this year but the year before talk to my graduating seniors last night and we're very like-minded in terms of daily writing and energetic writing and kind of creating a schedule almost athletic schedule that you, that you stick to and keeping your butt in the chair mm. and as much as I, you know, part of my writing are, you know, filling journals and getting outside, and but my morning starts right where I'm sitting right now, and uh, it's a pretty daily thing. I mean, I had a knee operation this year where I had to get up at four in the morning, and that was my one day off, you know. So what I would say to young writers is that, well, I'll do two things. Or environmental writers just writers in general is that there's a magic to dailiness um, that right. you become a writer when you're doing it every day you become a different writer than the writer you were when you did it occasionally you know I always say to them it doesn't have to be a rainy day in November and you're listening to Neil Young to be inspired you can be inspired every day so there's that and that's the more uh, kind of sedentary obviously uh, quotidian, part of my writing life. The other thing I would say is opposite that throw yourself into things. Throw yourself into adventures. I mean a classic for me was I was at a party here in Wilmington and the writer John Jeremiah Sullivan was there and it was the summer of the BP oil spill and he said to me you know we'd had a couple beers and he said you should be down there right now. You yeah. should be you know talking to people and down the spill. So I went home and I talked to my wife, Nina, who's also a writer. And two days later, I was driving down there and everybody was telling me, oh, they're very, there's security. They're not going to tell you their stories. I found totally the opposite. It was like this Alice in Wonderland going into this weird world. And, but everybody wanted to tell me their stories and talk to. So, you know, when I did a piece on fracking, I just went to Vernal, Utah and walked into a bar. And the next thing I knew, I was. Um ATVing, which I was writing against, you know, with a guy and I broke my ribs, but that was good for the story, you know. Mm-hmm. So so it's dangerous, this part of it, you know, to plunge in and just talk to everybody. You'd find that politics aren't as simple as Fox versus, M- versus nbc when you're out in the real world or the encountering people. I don't want to say real world because that's my father's term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> out in the engaged world. Mm-hmm so so those are the two pieces of advice i'd give you know too often young writers cling to kind of just the memoir young non-fiction writers cling to memoir but by throwing yourself into these things you know um you know sure research uh research red tail hawks and then but then go go to hawk mountain go to follow their migration things mm-hmm. like that so so um so be boring in the mornings, most of the time, and then occasionally be wild. It's like a Stegner Abbey thing again.
2: <laughs> That's great advice. Thank you so much, David. It's been a huge pleasure speaking with you, and I thank you so much for your generosity here. Is there any sort of teaser you wanted to share about your your new book, which is coming out imminently?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's I've kind of described it a little here. It's my travels after the pandemic, kind of a continuation of the quiet, desperation, savage delight, but this time I'm on the road, and it's western fires and talking to people there And you know one person uh, from the paradise fire said to me um, what people don't get is it's our personal stories so i'm trying to tell those stories then i'm going up and down the hurricane coast where i live with oren pilkey who's this very combative funny mm. coastal scientist uh, who's long warned that the seas are rising uh, so uh, you know it goes back and forth between those and, and different trips And talking to scientists and trying to make sense in a kind of new way, hopefully in new language at least, the climate crisis. And then I'm going to go back to something more. I think the next thing I'm going to write is about Y2Y, the connected pathway Mm. from Yellowstone to the Yukon. Uh, I just need a dose of optimism. You know, I'm getting the first review I got. I just got last week. uh, Kirkus review said, "Excellent environmental journalism, but light on the optimism." And I'm like, "Yeah, well, it's hard. The world, (laughs) you know, uh, does that mean that you want me to be happy?
2: Mm -hmm. Not going to do that." (laughs) Awesome. I can't wait to read it, David. And thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, Thanks, Brad. It
0: was fun.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks to all of you for listening to the Wild Air podcast. I've included a link to David's website in the podcast description where you can find out more about his new book. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave a review and share it with your friends. You can find other episodes wherever you download your podcasts or at www.thewildair.org.